There is a battle going on all around us. I'm sure uh, people in Ukraine don't need reminded that there's a battle going on all around them. But we can easily forget because it's not a physical battle that's going on around us, but a battle for our hearts and our minds. We face a very devious enemy who appeals not to ultimate standards of right and wrong, not to any fixed standard, but to emotions and feelings. An enemy who puts pressure on us in all sorts of ways to to forget our allegiance to the true king and instead to listen to others instead of him. He attempts to do this in our lives as individuals and he attempts to do this for for us as nations. A massive shift has clearly taken place in many western countries in the last decade. Uh, one example of this is same-sex marriage. It was legalized in the UK in 2014 and in America in 2015. And how did attitudes change? Uh, well, well, the change largely came about through an appeal to emotions. Uh, and when it comes to the church, mainline denominations have caved in on the issue. In the past week, the headline may have been Church of England bishops refuse to back gay marriage. However, at the very same time, it is said that it wants to offer blessings to gay couples. The Church of England also formally apologised for the times it had rejected or excluded uh, so-called LGBTQI plus people. That last bit of news was followed by an emotional video of the Archbishop of York speaking at a press conference. Emotions front and centre. And another figure, the Bishop of Oxford, he said something quite revealing. He said, as I've listened to the stories and experiences of LGBTQ plus people, all of my pastoral instincts pointed to finding a way of interpreting the Bible to allow for greater love and support, tolerance and the blessing of their partnerships. Did you hear what he said there? He starts with stories and experience and he says that in light of that he wanted to find a way to interpret the Bible differently. Uh, And so the battle for hearts and minds has been lost not because the Bible wasn't clear but because stories and experiences have trumped the Bible. And here in the chapter in front of us in 2 Samuel chapter 14, we have a touching story. We have emotional manipulation and we have people who allow themselves to be manipulated And and short term it it works, but the long term outcome of it all, as we'll see when we get to chapter 18, is death. Death for Absalom and death for many others. Because the wages of sin is always death, sooner or later. David's son Absalom pulls the heartstrings of his father uh, and wins the affection of the public. But soon after this, he's dead. And he and many others will die, uh, not because David loved Absalom t- 
too much, but because he loved him too little. He loved him too little to do what should be done and say what should be said. So as we've already hinted at, this chapter has lots of applications for us as individuals, as churches and as a nation. And we'll seek to to make those applications as we just work through the chapter tonight without any any headings as such. But we'll we'll start at at the beginning. The story starts with Joab, the commander of David's army. And Joab knows that David is pining after Absalom. Some suggest that verse 1 should be translated to say that David's heart was against Absalom. And so Joab, with all his scheming, is trying to change David's mind about him. But I think our translations get this right. And that Joab is trying here to persuade David to do something that, that deep down Joab knows David wants to do. But David knows is wrong. Why is it wrong? Why is it wrong? Why would it be wrong for David to bring his son home? Is it not unloving to keep him out there in exile? Well, Absalom is an unrepentant, cold-blooded murderer. He fled from the scene of the crime and has been on the run for three years. But as we know from stories that are in the news every so often, it doesn't matter how long someone has been on the run. There doesn't come a point where the police say, well, yes, he's been in hiding long enough, so we'll close the case and he can just come home. There's still an outstanding warrant for Absalom's arrest. As soon as he re-enters Israelite territory, he should be taken into custody. And he seems to recognise that himself. In fact, down in verse 32, he seems to recognise that the proper legal punishment for him should be death. When he says, if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. After all, that's God's requirement for murder. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. But David's heart goes out to his son. Um, That in itself is understandable. And yet his natural affection overrides what should be done. With Bathsheba, David's sin was doing something that was wrong. Here his sin is not doing what was right. At the very least, there should have been repentance before any sort of reconciliation. Sometimes a church might stop someone from taking the Lord's Supper because of some big sin in their life. Uh, But but time goes by and perhaps the person's family put pressure on the elders. Perhaps other church members keep uh, asking about it. Uh, And so the person is allowed back to the Lord's table, not because there's any evidence they've repented, but because it's the easy thing to do. The question of whether the person should be allowed back or not becomes secondary in the face of the the emotional arguments. And certainly the question of of right or wrong, it's not something that seems to ever have troubled Joab, David's army commander. And so he comes up with a plan to get Absalom back. 
apparently just to stop David pining after him. It seems that Joab thought that the whole thing had become such a distraction for David that that David needed to, to, to get Absalom back so he could focus and get on with his other responsibilities. But whatever Joab's exact reasons, it, it clearly backfired because Joab isn't trying to start a rebellion here. Joab's loyalties are to David. He doesn't seem to have any affection for Absalom. When Absalom does come back, Joab ignores him. And when Absalom eventually rebels, Joab sticks with David. So, so, so Joab isn't a secret, uh, a secret adherent of Absalom. He's not wanting to overthrow David. He just wants Absalom back so that, so that David can get on with, with his normal responsi- responsibilities. And I think that explains why Joab will, 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 will orchestrate everything so Absalom comes back and then totally ignore Absalom. And the first lesson to take from all this is that David was predisposed to listening to, to whatever reason someone would give for bringing Absalom home. Like with the Bishop of Oxford, David's heart had already been won. He just needed a reason to do what he already wanted to do anyway. He just needed a reason to do what he already wanted to do anyway. And we can be like that as individuals. Uh, the, the alcoholic can be looking for an excuse to justify a binge. Or we can be looking for an excuse to, to justify whatever sin we find comfort in. Our hearts are so deceptive. Perhaps we convince ourselves that, that we only did that thing because something bad happened to us first. When, when really we were just looking for an excuse to do it. And so even though David sees through this story and realises who's behind it, even though David could have picked holes in the analogy that's used, he allows himself to be convinced. He allows himself to be convinced to do what he already wants to do anyway. Perhaps we hear of someone who's given up on church and they talk about the bad experiences they've had. And that's the reason they give for walking away. And yet someone else goes through those same experiences and maybe even worse experiences, but, but the other person doesn't walk away. What's the difference? Well, often it's the case that there, there is a heart that was already being pulled away by the world. And the bad experience, which may genuinely have been bad, becomes the justification they need to follow where their heart is already pulling them. And when I say the justification they need, they need I don't mean necessarily to other people, but, but, but first and foremost, to, to allow them to justify it to themselves. So often our, our, our minds are, are, are made up. Um, you know, there, there, there are people who, whose minds are made up to leave a church long before they actually do, but they, they, they go round looking for a, a, for a reason. Or, or the person who turns their back on Jesus altogether. Uh, and they talk just in terms of intellectual questions, in terms of rational arguments. But biblically speaking, we know that nothing is ever a purely intellectual issue. 
Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. C.S. Lewis tells a parable about a Church of England bishop who had ended up in hell after denying the gospel. And the bishop is shocked to be told that he's going to end up in hell. Uh, and Lewis imagines a conversation that the bishop has with a friend who, who once taught the same thing, but the friend now repented and is in heaven. And the bishop protests, God will not punish people for holding honest opinions. And that God wouldn't punish him for the risk that he took in preaching a sermon that denied key doctrines of Christianity. He did a brave thing. He says he took a risk. His friend replies to him, what, what risk? What, what was it all likely to come of it except what actually came? Popularity, sales for your books, invitations and finally a bishopric. So, so you see the bishop is claiming to have done something brave by, by, by denying key doctrines of Christianity. But actually what has he got out of it on earth? He's got, he's got book sales, he's got invitations to speak, he, he's made a bishop. And his friend explains that the truth of the matter is that they both drifted along with the current of ideas, saying things that would get them good grades or applause, never resisting the loss of faith, but passively embracing the spirit of the age. Denial of the Christian faith might seem a brave step for someone to take. They might tell themselves that they have doubts that can no longer be ignored. And yet, what's the result of it all? They end up being able to affirm anything that the world around them says they should affirm. They no longer have to stand out as different. They no longer have to take up their cross and follow Jesus. I'm not saying that people consciously set out to deny the faith with that goal in mind though no doubt some do. But all I'm saying is that our hearts are deceitful. And the reasons we tell ourselves we're doing things aren't always the real reasons. So all that's to say is that David is already predisposed to listen to whatever arguments will be given for bringing Absalom home. Joab knows that about him. Joab can read him uh, and Satan uh, can read us. Satan knows uh, about us as well what we are just looking for an excuse to do. And so Joab sends a wise woman to come to David with a sad made up story. Um, when she's called a wise woman that doesn't mean wise in biblical terms but in terms of worldly wisdom. And she dresses up like she's in mourning, uh, comes and tells David Joab's made-up story in order to, to pull on his heartstrings. Uh, and it doesn't matter that the story is fiction. It doesn't matter that even if it was true, it wouldn't be a direct equivalent. Because two brothers quarreling in a field where, where one brother is killed, that's manslaughter. Whereas a cold-blooded murder that's two years in the making is, is murder. But despite the, the, the flaws in the story, it has its desired effect. Because David wants to believe it. And is that not what we have been getting for years now? 
to go back to, to the example that's, that's been in the news this past week, what are people's views on same-sex marriage based on? Well, by and large, they're based on fictional media portrayals. A couple of weeks ago, we had the first ever data from a census that asked people about their sexual orientation. Uh, what percent of the population do you think identified as either L or G, to use those, those first two words of the ever-expanding list? 1.5%. 1.5% of the population identify as L or G. And obviously, the, the percentage of those living together... Uh, with a partner, never mind in a so-called marriage, will be much smaller. And so if people aren't going to base their, their morals on the Bible, they'll base it on experience. But the average person is going to have very little real life experience of what two partners of the same sex living together actually looks like. Almost all our experience of it comes from screens, from made-up stories... Uh, We're told that it's the equivalent of any other marriage. Uh, But just like the story Joab spins here, it's not a direct equivalent. And at the same time, there are real-life stories that you are unlikely to hear because they don't fit the narrative. In July, uh, two men in America who were literally poster boys for the LGBTQ cause were arrested and charged with molesting their two primary school age adopted sons. But it was barely reported at all. Then this past week after a a month-long investigation, one media outlet in America revealed that the parents were also pimping their sons out to other men. There are pictures of the two men and the two boys on social media all wearing rainbow t-shirts which say, Love my family. But the reality is very different. Now obviously, I'm not saying that this is where same-sex adoption leads. Though even the most loving same-sex couple will be depriving any adopted children of either a mother or a father. Even at its best, it's not the same. But in the case of this horrible, wicked, vile abuse, the journalist who, who revealed the story in the last week has been attacked for her work. And both local and mainstream media, or, or local and national media outlets, have by and large ignored it. As a columnist for the outlet that did report on it said, Imagine for a moment if a prominent, high-profile, married, heterosexual couple had been accused of engaging in sexual abuse, pornography and prostitution of their two adopted children. What kind of media coverage would that story get? He goes on, imagine if the straight couple were a pastor and his wife, or outspoken conservative pro-family activists. There would have been a media-feeding frenzy. But this story, he says, involving two outspoken pro-LGBTQ rights activists got perfunctory local write-ups and a small handful of national hits. After the first day, nothing. And I think it shows that for all the talk of equality, media outlets don't treat same-sex marriage and same-sex adoption as equal. Because if they did, they wouldn't be afraid to report on stories like this. 
They wouldn't be afraid that it might reflect badly on the whole idea. Just to reiterate, I'm not saying this abuse is typical. Uh, There's no evidence for that, but it is a a real story. Uh, The media will give us no end of made-up portrayals of what these things look like, but here's an actual real story. It's not one we have any reason to believe is a representative story, but a real story nonetheless. Uh, And we'll wait and see how widespread the reporting of it will be. But we do live in a culture which would rather believe made-up stories than real ones. Uh, And David is the same here. So he lets Absalom come back. And as we prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table, are there made up stories that we have started to believe? That God is cruel, that his laws are restrictive, that sin isn't really a big deal. And so David lets Absalom back, but he won't let him come into his presence. It's a compromise But it doesn't last long. Once David has led Absalom back into the country, it seems inevitable that Absalom will end up back as if nothing has ever happened. And often, whether in our personal lives, our our family lives, our church lives, our national lives, there is something that that we know to do would be wrong. And so we don't do it, but, but we open a door to it, which will make it easier for us to do the thing itself in the future and we don't do it but we take a step towards it and again as we prepare to come to communion next week are there sins that you haven't yet committed and and yet you've left a, a door open to which will make it easier to commit that sin in the future and here once the door is opened there's only ever going to be one outcome Once Absalom is back in the country, it's not long before he's back in David's presence. Despite never having repented or faced any sort of punishment for the cold-blooded murder of his brother. And yet David has been told that not to let him back would be an attack on the people of God themselves. That's what what the wise woman says in verse 13. And and who wants to be accused of, of uh, of attacking people, never mind attacking the people of God. And so David does the thing which he's been told is the compassionate, tolerant, humane thing to do. But in doing so, he's letting a snake into his house. And very soon, he'll experience the dreadful consequences. Stories are powerful things. The Bible itself is a story. It's a true story. It's a story that's important to try and help people see, uh, to see the whole story, uh, and not just individual parts of it. But Satan has his own rival story that he wants to tell. And often he'll use stories to bypass people's critical faculties, to get them to agree to things without thinking through the consequences But the Bible has a better story to tell. A story where wicked sinners like Absalom and like us 
aren't just let back into the fold unchanged, but a story where the great king himself gives up his life for his wayward children. And he dies for us both to save us and to change us. And just as we draw things to a close tonight, I want to finish with three verses from this chapter which illustrate the gospel. Not verses which are all necessarily intended to apply the way that I'm about to apply them, but three verses which provide helpful ways to think about how God works in our own lives. The first of the three verses is verse 30. Uh, where Joab uh, having, has stopped taking Absalom's calls, as it were, and Absalom responds by setting his field on fire. And it works. So, boys and girls, there's one man ignoring another man. He wasn't listening to him. Uh, he, and one man was sending messages and the other person wasn't replying. So the man that was being ignored, he went and set the other man's field on fire because he, he wanted him to listen to him. And it worked. And of course, Spurgeon gets a whole gospel sermon out of this verse. Uh, how, how does he manage that? Well, well, he makes the point that this is what God sometimes does to get our attention. He sets our fields on fire. Our fields, which are really his fields anyway. In other words, he brings disasters into our lives to get our attention. For the non-Christian, he brings events into our lives to bring them to Christ in the first place. For the Christian, he brings in events to get them to rely on him more and more. As C.S. Lewis so famously put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When Absalom set Joab's fields on fire, it wasn't out of love. But when God uh, brings some event into our lives, which we really would rather he hadn't, it is out of love. All his dealings with his people are out of love. If you want to have that theme flashed out a bit more, you can go home and read Spurgeon's sermon, The, the Barley Field on Fire. Uh, probably uh, the only person who, who's preached on, on that verse. Uh, the second verse I want to highlight is verse 14. And here I think the wise woman speaks better than she knows. Uh, because this is true wisdom when she says in verse 14, the second half of the verse, God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now in terms of Absalom, God hadn't devised means where the banished one could be brought back without repentance. But though her application of it is wrong, the point itself is true enough. More than true enough, in fact. Because what she says is actually a great summary of the gospel. Because what are men and women this side of Eden we're the banished ones. We're those who've been cast out of God's presence. The message of the Bible is that that's what sin does to us. Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. The nation of Israel were banished from the Promised Land in both cases because of sin. Both times are cast out of the one place on earth where God was particularly present. 
We are the banished ones. And if we die remaining banished from God's presence, we will be banished from it for all eternity in hell. But as the wise woman put it, God has devised means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. What is that means through which we can come back to God? It is the cross of Christ. We could never work our way back to him by, by any amount of good deeds or religiosity. But he has come and he has built a bridge. Absalom isn't the only one deserving death. Each of us deserves it too. The wages of sin is death. We don't condemn the sins of others as if we did not deserve death ourselves. But none of us need remain outcasts. Not now, not in this life and not for eternity. Because a greater son of David died the death that we deserve. And as a result, heaven is opened to us. And that brings us to the third and final verse I want to highlight. That's verse 32. Verse 32, because what is Absalom's complaint there? His complaint is that it would be, have been better for him still to be in exile than to return but not be able to come into the king's presence. Or, or literally, as some versions have it, not be able to see the king's face. It would be better to stay in exile than, not to, see the, than, than to come home but not see the king's face. And is that not how we feel about heaven? Some think that to be a Christian is about escaping hell and getting to be in heaven. And it wouldn't matter to them whether Jesus was in heaven or not. For them, heaven without Christ would still be heaven. In fact, it might even be better. But would you be happy to go to a heaven without Jesus there? For the true believer, surely the cry of our heart if we got to a heaven where Jesus was absent, would be, why am I here if I can't see the king's face? Why am I redeemed if I may not see the face of my God? And so though a chapter like this does help us reflect on the emotional, heart-string-pulling stories that our society tells in order to draw people away from their duty to God, Let's not forget that each and every one of us fell hook, line and sinker for the first lies that were ever told. You shall not surely die. You shall be like God. But God in his grace hasn't left us to face the consequences of believing that lie. Instead he has intervened in our lives but by setting our fields on fire if that's what he needed to do. By telling us of the means he has devised so that the banished one will not remain an outcast in order that one day we might see the king's face. Amen. Well, let's sing of this, this great hope we have of seeing the king's face from Psalm 17. Psalm 17 verse 10 to the end on page 25. 
Psalm 17, 10 to the end, the tune Belmont 52. In verse 10, we sing of God's justice. Uh, God is a God who does what David in uh, our chapter today would not bring himself to do, and that is to confront our foe. Uh, Verse 11 talks about worldly men who only in this present life have anything of worth. Uh, And is that not Absalom? Uh, We read earlier about uh, Absalom's uh, splendid hair and, and the weight of his hair whenever he would cut it. Uh, We're told about his hair, we're told about his children, uh, but he has no spiritual characteristics to highlight. Only in this present life does he have anything of worth. In verse 12, worldly men and women are satisfied with with children. Uh, We're told in our chapter, Absalom had had four, three sons and a daughter. Uh, Absalom spoke of his desire to see the king's face. He he said all the right things, but it was all a pretense. It was all a backdrop for rebellion. It was all uh, an excuse uh, to pave the way for him to live however he wanted. But as for me, we sing in verse 13, but as for me in righteousness, I your own face will see and with your likeness, when I wake, I satisfied will be. So verses 10 to the end of Psalm 17, we'll stand and sing praise.